Red seaweeds are pretty novel. They evolved to create specialized compounds. In the case of our seaweed, it has developed through evolution a compound within it that is directly responsible for reducing the methane emissions in cattle. The goal is to expand further into the supply chains over the coming decade, targeting a million cows over the next five years. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. I am your host, Florian, and I am thrilled to welcome you to this brand new podcast where we meet with the founders building the technologies to get us to net zero. We live in the defining decade for climate. We have until 2030 to halve our emissions. In Scaling Climate Tech, we will understand how these incredible climate technologies work and if and how they can replace fossil solutions not over the next century, but in the next 10 years. Hello everyone, welcome back. Today in Scaling Climate Tech, we welcome Alexia Agbe, co-founder and CEO of Symbrosia. Symbrosia is a climate tech startup whose mission is to scale up the production of a unique seaweed that can be used as a feed supplement for cows and that can reduce their methane emissions up to 90%. With 15% of all greenhouse gas emissions coming from livestock and a significant share of these emissions due to methane coming from cow's digestive system, seaweed could have a fantastic carbon reduction impact by just adding a few scoops of seaweed to existing cow's feed. Founded five years ago, Symbrosia is based in Hawaii where this red seaweed naturally grows and has raised $7 million last year with investors including Danone, the French dairy giant, to scale up its seaweed production facilities. Let's get started. Hello, Alexia. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. Hi, Florian. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm really happy that you're here and I'm really glad to have this conversation because we'll, we'll talk about a massive climate problem that I, I think doesn't get as much attention as other climate challenges that we hear more often about. Um, I'm thinking a lot of energy-related challenges as well. And with a solution that we'll talk about that your company, Symbrosia, has developed, which at least from the outside seems very simple and highly scalable. So really excited about this. So we'll talk about a lot of topics at the intersection of technology, aquaculture, and livestock farming. We'll talk about why is there even a cow methane problem? We don't talk about this for other animals. So what does this stem from? We'll talk about the size of that problem, which is fairly staggering as well. What solutions exist today and, and how can seaweeds, specifically uh, Symbrosia's red seaweed, achieve pretty incredible uh, methane reduction results? We'll touch upon how do you end up working on this uh, specific climate challenge. Uh, you studied at Yale and, and then you, you built a seaweed startup in Hawaii. So really interested to know more about this journey. How do we farm seaweed? We'll see. Uh, I think it's a fairly difficult crop to grow. And, you know, what needs to be overcome still to have seaweed used by 1.5 billion cows on the planet and truly scale uh, this technology. So before going into all of those topics, and as we always do on this show, uh, could I ask you to introduce yourself, Alexia? Sure. Yeah, my name is Alexia Akbai. I'm the CEO and founder of Symbrosia. Symbrosia is a clean tech or a climate tech startup that seeks to grow seaweed as a feed supplement for ruminant livestock, which includes beef, cows, dairy cows, sheep, and even goats to reduce their methane emissions 
by over 90%. And this is really important because almost 14% of total global greenhouse gas emissions come from this source of greenhouse gases. And at the same time, methane is a very potent greenhouse gas compared to CO2. So it has a, a much larger warming potential. But that also means from a strategic standpoint that if we reduce it more quickly, we can also have a, a higher reduction of basically warming in the atmosphere. So I think strategically, it's it's great to work on methane as soon as possible and not just focus on CO2. Absolutely. And we'll come back to the tool of the concepts. And just you mentioned 90%. This is not a marketing statement, right? This is a proven technology and something that's been uh, measured and scientifically proven. Yeah. So there's about 15 peer-reviewed studies now um, ranging across three continents using this seaweed. The nice thing about this like natural source of emissions is that it can be measured pretty directly. So um, compared to like soil carbon or uh, planting trees, where there's a lot of estimation involved, we do direct measurement of the reduction. So it's it's not greenwashing and the, the science is pretty clear on the reduction potential. Could you share a few um, metrics to give us a sense of, you know, where is Simbrosa today? You know, it could be production quantities, employees, but just try and get a sense of how large and how commercial are you today? Yeah, we're about 22 employees currently. Most of those folks are on site, either in operations engineering or cultivation of the seaweed. And then now uh, we have a few folks in business development that are remote. In terms of our go-to-market strategy and capacity right now, uh, we're working with a lot of larger brands to do initial trials within their supply chain. So usually on the range of like 30 to 50 animals at a time in the experimental group and 30 to 50 controls. And then the goal um, coming out of a few of those yet this year is to expand further into the supply chains over the coming decade, targeting a million cows over the next five years. It's pretty exciting. Okay, just before going to all of this, uh, let's start at the beginning. Can you tell me a bit more about you, about your childhood? Uh, you're in Hawaii now, but where did you grow up? And did you have any interesting, you know, climate or maybe not climate, but nature or the ocean when you were a kid? Or is that something, an interest that grew uh, later on uh, with time? Yeah, so I was born in Turkey, in Bursa, Turkey, um, and my family immigrated to the U.S. when I was a child. So there was definitely like an immigrant American dream mentality in my household growing up. My parents worked a lot. Um, they were entrepreneurs and restaurant owners, small business owners. So my exposure to outdoors and, and nature was, I would say, pretty limited. Like, I don't have that typical story arch of I was a kid and I loved playing in the forest and my parents took me camping. That was not my lifestyle. I, I think, understood more entrepreneurship and the risk and the dedication that it took and the community aspects and building relationships with people and and how that really elevates a community. But as I grew up, I think, again, like having immigrant parents, there were some expectations on what career pathways I would take. And so pretty early into my college career, I decided to go on the pre-medicine route. So I was a chem major. I also did public health and went on to do my master's in public health with the expectation that I was going to go to medical school. I knew at the time that I didn't want to go <laughs> to medical school. The average life expectancy of Americans had just dropped 
for the first time in, I guess, recorded history, our medical system here, and I'm sure you and, and everyone else is aware of this, is, is pretty flawed. And I knew I didn't want to be a part of it, that it was pretty commercial and was doing a lot more harm than good. So at the time, I was really studying environmental public health, and um, I had also went back to Turkey to take like summer university classes over there. And at the time, so it was around 2015, we had just taken in, I think the unofficial number is about 17 million Syrian refugees into the country, which really was a visible phenomenon and had extreme impacts on just society. And it was it was pretty uh, devastating to watch. And at the time at, at that university, there were a number of academics that were speaking out on the crisis. And I remember going to one talk where a professor mentioned that the refugee crisis actually was a result of drought, that a lot of more rural folks um, had experienced agricultural drought in their regions and migrated into cities, which caused conflict and that climate change had exacerbated uh, this drought. And I think from there, I really made the decision that climate change was going to be really disastrous. At the time, I think the UN had predicted 300 million climate refugees by 2050. I think currently that stat has rose to over a billion climate refugees. So I think that was a really visceral experience for me and, and um, one kind of sparked hmm. my interest in definitely environmental health and definitely climate change. It's really a experience on the ground that made you understand and, and you know see firsthand the, the effects of climate change or at least what climate change can strengthen in terms of effects. Yeah, and how violent. Right, right. Okay. And you already have an angle to climate because that's what I found really difficult in climate is many people are interested in it and that's fantastic and they want to learn more about it. But it's also such a, a complex problem. Uh, you know, there's so many topics that you can look at. There are so many angles that you can look at for each topic, technology, regulations, and so on. And you can get a bit lost into it. Did you already have a perspective on, you know, this is agriculture that I want to pursue, or this is this technology mindset that I want to pursue, or were you really like exploring all the, the possibilities when you were in your master's? Yeah, I think when you look at the options to enter into the like climate workforce at a higher level, just that the sources of emissions, obviously energy and transportation is one of the top, but I knew that there was a lot going on in that industry already. Um, there were a lot of, obviously, solar and battery innovations already happening and electric cars were kind of taking off. And then when you look at the next group or category, that's agriculture. And so composting and food waste is a big priority item in there. But methane from livestock had not really been addressed yet. So I think when that was kind of like my first <laughs> analysis of where I'd like to join in. But I think that's a really good strategy, too. And just thinking about, OK, we're on this together, but we we all need to strategically be working at reducing as many emissions as possible. I think replicating efforts or developing new technologies where there's not one needed can really divert energy away from solving the problem cohesively. So I really urge anyone that's 
thinking about entering the climate workforce to kind of approach it from like a holistic perspective and really analyze where you could be of the most help. And is there any, you know, framework you had in mind or any resources you found really helpful in that journey to narrow down from, you know, this is the big picture climate problem trying to solve to this is really, you know, the space I'm going to play in? I think there's like some pie charts, pretty simple stuff that the UN puts out where you can look at uh, the breakdown of emissions. I think that's a great place to start. And then the other thing, too, I know that there's probably some like imposter syndrome if you're transferring from one industry into climate. I think that really needs to be overcome. These industries are are relatively new in, in general. And I think yeah, just working personally to build up knowledge and capacity in those industries and, and not have that be a chip on your shoulder could really go a long way, too. And progress over perfection. Right. I think that when people are thinking about transitioning, like need to find the perfect project to either start or work on. But just getting your hands dirty and starting to work in the industry in any capacity, I think, is a great first start. 100% agree. And and through the the conversation I'm having uh, through this podcast, through something that comes out is, you know, you have founders that don't have prior expertise in the industry. So in your case, it's livestock. Uh, we had an episode with Paul Gross from Remora in trucking recently. He wasn't a trucking expert before that. But you don't necessarily need for every of those ideas that deep industry expertise to be relevant to, to bring up a decarbonization solution. So that's very interesting. Can you walk me a bit through the, the ideation process for Symbrazel when you were at, uh, at Yale? And what sparked the idea to look at red seaweed? Yeah, so from my background in chemistry, I'm used to reading a lot of scientific literature. And I knew at the time that it takes about 10 years for something to get from a lab, like an academic lab, into the real world in any capacity. And and that was a little infuriating to me because I was also working in academic labs and I knew that there was a problem, but it didn't really seem like the PI, like the investigators or the lab's responsibility was to get it out into the public and make it usable. So I was just searching through literature and came across this one paper on seaweed. And at the time, I was pretty flabbergasted because obviously it's a massive reduction in methane emissions. And no one was commercializing it at the time after Googling online and trying to find like, where can you purchase the seaweed or what efforts are being conducted? And so I applied for a small grant at the university. I think it was like 300 dollars or five hundred dollars at the time and i got it which was i think like the first affirmation that okay this concept is good enough to like maybe try to actually execute on it i mean three hundred dollars isn't that much but i was also a public health student and it was a grant at the school of the environment i'm not sure if you're familiar with like the yale school of the environment but they're very um I don't know, they're very like into themselves. So I was like, wow, if I could do it at that school, then um, I guess this is good enough. Got it. But it's a research paper. So that's not a, there are a lot of research paper to just, you know, state papers. So how do you, you know, made up your mind about it that this was actually something solid to deep dive on? And, and how do you make yourself an opinion, basically? And did you already have the idea that this is a startup or not yet at this stage? Yeah, at that stage, it was more of like a school project, honestly, where I was working with a couple of my like student colleagues on this. But I had reached out to the researchers on the paper and talked to them 
directly. And I could tell, um, you know, they were kind of top in their field. So that was also interesting. And they had planned already all the next experiments and publications. So they were really going to be diving into this topic. And they kind of shared a little bit more information than what was apparent in the, the written paper about additional research they had done. So I felt security that, okay, like these researchers who are typically pretty like skeptical or objective really had a strong opinion on the efficacy and felt that there was a lot that was not even published yet that was really promising. So I think from there, that kind of gave me the motivation that the the research was solid. But they had also pointed out at the time that like, yeah, we can't even get enough of the seaweed to run all the trials that we wanted to do and also kind of confirmed that methods for growing the seaweed needed to be established and that it would be a good use of time. So I think, yeah, having that relationship with the researchers pretty early on helped solidify our, my standpoint moving forward. And can we geek out a bit on on how does seaweed actually, you know, works? Yeah, very limited knowledge about, you know, entry fermentation and, and how uh, cows and other animals produce methane and and you know why does seaweed reduce those those methane emissions? So if you could just explain that the mechanism at a high level. Yeah. So seaweed is categorized into three main groups. There's brown seaweeds, green seaweeds, and red seaweeds. Brown and green seaweeds are the ones that are like most commonly eaten globally because they grow pretty fast. Um, they grow in temperate areas, not just in tropical areas. Um, and so the society is more familiar with mostly brown seaweeds. Red seaweeds, on the other hand, are are pretty novel because they don't grow as quickly, but they've evolved to create specialized compounds. So these can be compounds that are extracted and put into your toothpaste or your milk, or they've been used for like next generation antibiotics or medical treatments. They have just evolved to grow slower and they have access to an array of elements in the ocean that land plants don't have access to. And so they've kind of evolved to just have these really fascinating components in them. In the case of our seaweed, it's a red seaweed, and it has developed uh, through evolution a compound uh, within it that is directly responsible for uh, reducing the methane emissions in cattle. So what happens is the cattle consume the seaweed, um, those compounds go through their fermentation process and basically directly inhibit synthesis of methane in the gut and it produces um, hydrogen gas instead and the carbon from the methane is recycled into their metabolism so it actually improves the usability of the feed that the cattle are consuming it's kind of like a secondary benefit for the farmer producer okay so that's that's the mechanism that actually stops the production of the the methane in the in the cows and you mentioned earlier this this 15 percent number you know, which is absolutely staggering global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And just putting this in perspective, like 15%, uh, I was making calculation, it's it's seven gigaton a year. And that's more than the emissions of the US, you know, just from um, from cows globally, uh, just to give a sense of the amount of emissions that are produced by cows. And you also mentioned earlier, and I'd, I'd love to pause on this, that methane is specifically important because of its warming potential on the short term. and Again, I think it's worth discussing this for maybe those who are not super familiar with the warming potential, but can you just 
explain high level, you know, the difference between methane warming and other gases and specifically uh, CO2 warming? Yeah. So methane, as we more commonly know it, is natural gas. It's used to heat our homes and water. And so it's really flammable and has a lot of energy in it. That's why it's a lot better at warming the atmosphere because it's basically trapped in its molecules. It has more energy that can be heated and exerted. CO2, on the other hand, is about 80 times less flammable or good at warming than methane over a 20-year time period. And it also persists in the atmosphere, CO2, for like 100 years, whereas methane persists for 12 years. So if we're able to cut methane emissions now, um, we'll see those cooling effects in 12 years versus if we were to cut CO2 by the same amount. Now we won't really see those warming effects start to occur until like more of a hundred year timeline. And so when you're planning like infrastructure planning or development planning, keeping that in mind is really important. Like um, a lot of the energy infrastructure that's been planned for development currently has already taken us like hypothetically above 2.5 degrees Celsius because the CO2 just persists in the atmosphere for so long. Thanks a lot for explaining this because we, we obviously need to reduce all of those greenhouse gases, but we're trying to reduce as much as possible as fast as possible. And so that's why the focus on methane really makes sense. And, you know, the biggest emitters of methane agriculture, what we're talking about today and, and oil and gas extraction primarily are the, the main contributors to this. It's a really important to reduce them quickly. By food waste. Food waste and composting is also a big source of methane and really yeah. important as well. But kind of overlooked because it's not as flashy as like batteries, <laughs> but there's definitely not a lot of effort needed in, in these realms. So Yurtiel, you've read this paper, very promising, you get a grant. When do you make the decision after Yale to actually make a company out of this? And how do you do that? So when we got that first grant, I was only two or three months into my master's, which I think was the saving grace because I didn't have to worry about balancing startup life with also having a full-time job. So I went pretty full-time while getting my degree into continuing to scale this project. So we got two or three more grants from Yale and MIT. There's a lot of great like business case competitions. And then about the end of my degree, a family office had reached out to us uh, about investment. And at the time, I had no clue <laughs> what was going on. Um, I had never yeah, received any investor investment. Um, I didn't even really know kind of what the drill was in terms of how to structure a deal or what was expected. But I knew that I wanted to work on this full time following school. And I knew that in order to do it well, I needed to get paid and other people needed to get paid to continue to build the project. So um, I remember in like spring of 2019, they flew me out to LA and I was really perplexed by the the whole thing. And I like arrived at their office, went up to the sixth floor and they had like this whole floor to themselves. And I was super nervous and I gave a pitch and they basically gave me an offer on the spot there. So yeah, that's kind of how I kicked off. So when I graduated, we had just gotten money in the bank and I don't even remember what our plan was at this time because there are probably so many iterations between then and now. But yeah, we knew at the time I thought we were going to move to California to scale up operations, but uh, that kind of changed quickly. That's a that's a really good way to start off from your studies. 
uh, you have the money in the bank. I'm also thinking that, you know, starting a farm like of any kind is really expensive because of all the equipment and, and all the crops and the seeds and so on. And, and I'm sure when you have an aquaculture operation, that's even more expensive. How do you think about that when you were making your prototype? Because I think the first seed funding is, is a million or so, which is a sizable amount of money, but it's, you know, you're not able to, to build a massive uh, farm either. So what were you trying to demonstrate with the first version of the first iteration of your product when you set up uh, from your studies? Yeah, so we were basically trying to develop a crop program for a seaweed crop that had never been grown before. Um, and in the beginning, we were really naive. I remember that I like had these models about uh, how our seaweed production was going to just be like exponentially increasing every month. Um, but then quickly, I realized that agriculture is really difficult and you need pest management strategies, you need seed bank and seed development strategies. There's a lot of, again, like just operational efficiencies because everything is very physical and on the ground. And you need to figure out how to do all this consistently because you have a customer that is going to need consistent products. So even though there's a lot of variation in like the weather and natural, like, yeah, events that could really derail like your production for one month. Um, you have to be, I guess, like even keeled in all your operations. So once we kind of figured that out, we really transitioned into heavier R&D into developing a seed bank and breeding seed strains for like improved yield and all these crop traits that we were really interested in. And then we also worked through a lot of different production methodologies and um, like infrastructure for growing the seaweed in and it's still ongoing today like we have parts of it figured out but there's still parts that could be refined and our r&d team is is still very active and it's almost like once you figure out one thing there's like a million other things still that you could continue to build on i think that's what makes it fun especially if you come from like a scientific background there's a lot of emerging research around seaweed and the importance of seaweed and so to also be in this position where we're working really closely with the crop and have a full R&D team, it does feel like in many ways we're like making a lot of progress for the whole industry with some of the innovations that we've developed on site. Hmm. And sorry for na- being so naive here, but I'm not a farmer. So my understanding is that seaweed is, is being farmed today, at least the brown and, and green seaweed is being farmed in Asia, I think mostly today. So there are some technologies that exist to farm these. But the challenge you have is that red seaweed being a, an entirely different species with its own needs. Were you able to incorporate a lot of the existing technologies and, and processes? Or did you have to basically rebuild a lot of things and, and discover uh, methods because you know no one had done this before? Yeah. A lot of the seaweed species that we grow today are grown because they're the easiest to grow. So a lot of the like marketing around seaweed is marketing in a lot of cases, like people consume spirulina because it's high protein, but it's also the easiest microalgae to grow and has protein in it. Like it's not like there was a full analysis on the microalgae with the most protein. And so I think when in our situation where we weren't just looking for an easy species to grow, we knew we had to grow this specific seaweed species and figure out how to do it. That added some complexity in terms of we had to develop our own methods. We could rely on some existing infrastructure as a baseline, but a lot of our efforts to date are like improving 
those processes. And then the other kind of limitation is that a lot of the seaweed is grown in Asia, but it's pretty low tech, kind of like in coastal regions and like a co-op model. You kind of just tie it to a rope and leave it there for a couple of weeks and go harvest it. It's it's pretty robust seaweed and pretty resistant. So yeah, there were definitely a number of challenges that most seaweed producers don't face because historically it hasn't been that financially viable to produce a difficult species. Got it. And can you walk us through maybe not the production method at the time, which I'm sure was different from today, but what does it look like, you know, a red seaweed production farm from Simbrosa today, maybe from the, I don't know where to start, is it the test tube to actually the powder you're, you're selling to your customers? Yeah. So we have a about five-step process, essentially. The first is the seed bank that we've developed and maintained. So this was about a two-year project where we snorkeled the coastline of most of the major Hawaiian islands and brought in um, a great variety of of seed, like over 500 different sample collections, and have now kind of isolated that down into two strains that we we work with majorly. And so from the seed bank, those strains get scaled into a flask culture of seaweed and then into a larger vessel indoors. And then from there, the seaweeds move outside. And so all of our production happens on land. It's non-arable lava, essentially, that we've built uh, seaweed reactors on. And so they start moving through basically larger and larger reactors. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's kind of difficult to explain this, but it's it's seawater in a vessel is facing the sun and is kind of mixed so that the seaweed's moving around. And then eventually that seed gets put into like a pond where it's grown out for the final step before it's harvested and processed using a freeze dryer currently. And how long is the entire growth process for, for seaweed? About three months. Like the little fragment, like a couple cells to fully harvested. And so the main self tag that Simbrosa worked on is the species selection, right? And and now you have that that species that, that you're probably choosing the the right traits. Is there any other technologies in terms of trying to picture how you know is that more towards vertical farming where it's highly automated uh, high, with a lot of IoT everywhere, or is that more of a standard salad farm with a bit of a lower tech uh, kind of setup? Yeah. Apart from the seed bank, we have incorporated a lot of automation throughout the facility. Labor is obviously a big cost input into farming. So any way to reduce the amount of labor and increase the amount of data we're collecting collecting has been highly prioritized. Um, We've also built a number of in-house sensors to collect information um, specific to our operation. So sensors that can predict the weight of the seaweed in a tank or a vessel, for example, has really helped. And then kind of more emerging projects that we're working on now that we've finalized the seed bank are um, exploring the seaweed microbiome a little bit further and how the health of that biome improves yields and can reduce cost inputs. And then downstream processing of the seaweed, so figuring out novel ways to, to increase the revenue that we can get from the same amount of biomass. And then honestly, a lot of it is also just continuing to like fine tune the production process and the operations. So I think like coming into, yeah, any climate tech 
opportunity that's physical and operational, like having that innate desire to really dig into the operational logistics and the numbers is critical or you need to find someone on your team or get someone on your team that is willing to do that because that's like the marker of success in terms of innovating. So all the small parameters you've, you've changed for five years that then make the production process what it is today and, and still evolving. So we talked a lot about the actual production process and I understand it's still improving, but now you have a, a production process that works uh, to a certain efficiency level. I'd love to shift gear and talk about now the client side and the demand side, essentially. Did you test when you were at Yale or later on, later on, I'm sure you did, the customer interest in this? And I'm specifically asking from a cost perspective, because I'm sure everything you've described is more expensive to do than regular or traditional cow feed. So how do you validate the idea that these customers would be interested? And how did you validate also their ability to pay some premium for that product? Yeah, at the time, about four years ago, the environment was a lot different than it is today. So we had talked directly to consumers. We had like a master's group do a survey on price sensitivity. So like what you, for example, would be willing to pay for a carbon neutral milk or beef product. We did a lot of outreach to brands. And then we did do direct outreach to producers themselves. At the time, there was good indication that especially younger generations were willing to pay more for environmentally friendly products. There was also interest from brands to incorporate technologies into their supply chains, although they were kind of at the early stages of really understanding what their footprint meant and kind of what they were going to be on the hook for because they had made these commitments. Since then, everyone's kind of wrapped up their LCAs and actually has to start doing stuff now. So that's kind of the nice wave that we've been riding since the conception of the company. And then what's really happened, I think, like over the past four years with the producer angle is that at the time, the media and the public was really painting livestock producers as like super evil. And so I think any discussions that we had initially were pretty triggering for that demographic, especially like now knowing what I know about their role in our society and how they are responsible directly for feeding all of us and to have taken them for granted and chastised them as a society and continue to. I think it's really short-sighted. So I think What's changed is like my approach to talking to those individuals as I learn more. Obviously, we mentioned I'm, I was not a livestock expert prior. I had good sense of like climate change and the impacts. But as I visited more farms and got a chance to understand their operations and their challenges and how much they take care of the land and really respect the animals, I think I was better able to position our technology and understand what the benefits were for those customers short-term and long-term. And so I think that we have a lot of productive conversations now with most of the kind of stakeholder groups in the industry. Every now and then you'll catch someone, I think, like on a bad day and wanting to take out their aggression on you. But for the most part, it's it's been really positive. I think that early on, we had a 
like a consulting group do producer outreach and they received a lot of bad feedback about, yeah, no one's going to pay for this. It's not the solution, etc. And I kept going. I don't know if that was like naive, but I think in some ways there was regulation and the brands were already on board with this. So you kind of had to assume that maybe the demand was not going to be coming directly from the producer themselves, but from their purchasers or their consumers. Yeah, it's super interesting because the, as you say, that companies getting pressure to reduce their emissions are not necessarily the, the farmer themselves who are not known often for bad reasons uh, to the, the, the consumer, but the brands, right? And it's easy in, inside now that, you know, there's like neutral, uh, all the, the brands that have huge climate claims on their, their milk bottles and, and others. Probably not the case in, in 2018 and, and 2019. Are you getting that same traction also from brands that maybe are, you know, a bit less leading in terms of climate? And I don't want to name any brands, but if we categorize a bit, you know, in a simple way, there are brands that have a price premium that will have specific climate claims. And then there are, you know, if you take any supermarket average milk brand that will not put forward any climate uh, commitment specifically, are you getting the same traction from those kind of different players? We're not getting, I would say, like the same traction. There's definitely aspects about the product that are interesting to more conventional farmers, the nutritional profile, and kind of like the downstream effects of not releasing methane have really good profitability outcomes potentially for farmers just on the animal health side of things. So that's usually a good conversation starter with more conventional livestock owners. But I mean, they're not like removed from society they know also what's happening they know that there's a lot of regulation potentially coming down and depending on what state they're in it could be more pressing like if you're in california and i think that generally farmers are entrepreneurial and are looking for the best price for their product and so sometimes enrolling into like an organics program antibiotic free animal welfare programs are kind of like the only ways to increase the value of your meat or dairy product and make it more feasible for you to remain a farmer and gain any sort of profit from your operation. So I think the vast majority of farmers are interested in new ways to improve the quality of the products they're selling, which is kind of like the end point. But I think one of the greatest changes as a result of these companies instilling climate-based targets is that I think a couple of years ago, a lot of these organizations, especially in the fashion industry that like use wool or animal fibers, had no direct relationship with the farms and their supply chain. And that's still the truth for a lot of brands today that we perceive to be very environmentally friendly. Uh, I'm not going to call anyone out, but it's it's sometimes shocking. And so in order to, to create those change within the supply chains, they've had to get to know their actual producers and establish those relationships, which I think is a really good wake up call for corporate America. And I think that connection is is really going to help us, I think, really understand the effects that like corporate scale has on our emissions and climate and develop the development that we'd like to see moving forward. So I think that's like the biggest plus that I've witnessed over the past three years. Yeah, definitely a, a momentum there. And it's it's a good thing both for, for the climate in terms of resilience of supply chain, right? Uh, companies going deeper to understand their their 
you know, what we call tier two, tier three, like the, the, uh, down their supply chain. Trying to understand, um, you know, this cost premium challenge without reveling any numbers, of course, how much of a challenge is it? And, and maybe the, the easiest is to look at the price premium on a, on a final bottle of milk, which is maybe the brand perspective, but also the price premium for a farmer, uh, which obviously is only a fraction of that, that bottle of milk. But help me, you know, contextualize how much of a premium, you know, driving down 90% of, of methane emission does represent. Yeah. So at the grocery store level, a 10% increase in the cost of the product will more than pay for implementation. The other metric that I like is kind of fun is like if you get a latte at the coffee shops, it's five cents extra to incorporate this over the, the lifetime of the cow. So it's really negligible when you think about like the daily fluctuation of beef and dairy prices in the market. The difficult thing is making sure that money gets back to the farmer, right? Because usually the brands do the price setting or the processors. And I think working through that entire complex supply chain has been the most difficult part. Yeah, 10% of the, the, the retail price isn't uh, at least seemed that big. And from a farmer's perspective, is there mechanisms that have been in place already where the price of the milk is bought at a higher price, you know, by the, the corporate because it includes a similar product or rather because it has a lower carbon intensity or other schemes like this where end buyers essentially subsidize the product somehow? So this is, yeah, like the newest frontier that we're seeing in terms of actually creating change within supply chains. Um, only a few brands to date have started doing this behind the scenes and they haven't even announced it publicly. But basically providing payment per carbon offset within their supply chains as an insetting mechanism and establishing like approved practices for farmers to use. So uh, we're working with a large co-op right now to be kind of one of like five suggested practices that they'll pay their farmers for, which really wasn't the case with other initiatives. I think where you were getting like direct payment per animal or per ton it was more so maybe like a little bit of an increase on your final product but it's cool it's definitely needed and it's a little bit overdue um i hope more companies follow suit yeah because that makes a lot of sense right it's the the final company that has the client's perception and the, the brand awareness that can drive that price premium and that is exposed to those climate commitments and and there needs some form of mechanism to bring those those financial incentives down the supply chain all the way to the the farmers that makes a lot of sense but I do realize it's, it's complex a setup. Yeah, it's really complex, but it's also smart because we know that there's not enough carbon offsets to even cover like Microsoft's footprint right now. So if you've made a, a target working within your own supply chain to get those offsets accounted for is really smart investment. Yeah, totally. Okay, so you have that facility that you've prototyped, you've harvested different species in Hawaii. You know, there's an iteration cycle of three months, basically, and it's improving throughout time. What were the next big milestone for you? Were, was it scaling up production to a bigger facility? Was it uh, piloting to new customers? Yeah, right now there's a lot of transitioning from like R&D to operating facilities. So even things like shipping logistics and like supply chain tracking ourselves is kind of one of those big shifts. But um, yeah, scaling our facility is a big one that's going to be that we're working on currently. So developing the site plans, 
working with architects and engineers to kind of get that built. So we're on about two acres currently, and that facility will be about 15-acre facility. And then I think really establishing, like as the company grows in size, really establishing what the goals of the research and development team over time is also like a really interesting opportunity, right? Because you've gotten so good at R&D, like the frameworks for it, that there's probably still a lot of capacity there to continue developing things, but um, making sure that it's in alignment with the growth of the company and keeping R&D as like an integral part of operations, even as it becomes more like commercial and production, I think will be an interesting transition too. And can you help me understand how many facilities you'd need to actually, you know, uh, be able, well, ideally cover all the, the cows of the world at some point? Because I read that you need to replace 1% of the cow's feed, which initially I was thinking 1% is not much, but actually a cow, it's 25 kilos of 50 pounds a day. So that's still half a pound of seaweed per day, which compared to the overall feed amount is not much, but you need to produce half a pound a day. So the facility you're building, obviously, just, just one of a kind still, but how large is it? How much demand can it serve? And if we want this to be mainstream, how many farms would you need throughout the world to serve the demand? Yeah, at our increased facility, the 15-acre, we could do around 800,000 cows, so a little under a million. In order to meet all of the demand in the United States, you need an area about 1% the size of Texas. And we do have a number of levers to to like basically increase the quality of the seaweed so that you need less of it in the feed. And that's like one of the major initiatives as internally as we scale is like, how can we get more methane reduction for the same amount of biomass produced? Okay, so one million, almost one million cow for one farm. It's still a really large or very efficient farm then. And you're based in Hawaii, and I understand why, because of the origin of the company and the way you, you, you started exploring a different type of seaweed. Is the model to be located near the cows and where the livestock are in the end? Or is there a specific constraints where you actually need to be based uh, somewhere for production? Yeah, we're exploring production in California currently. The nice part about being in Hawaii and why we stayed here is because you can do consistent year-round production versus in parts of the United States. There typically there's like more of a seasonality. So there's months when it's like too cold and too dark, and then the summer months are almost too hot and too sunny. So your production cycle ends up being like six or seven months of the year instead of twelve. So in terms of like the capital investment and your return time frame, it's a lot smoother here. So that's one of the main reasons why. We're staying here. Also, the largest microalgae producer in the United States is here as well. Like it's a pretty validated location for growing seaweed and microalgae. And what are the other big obstacles to large-scale deployment? You talked about just the production capacity. That's that's one, right? Scaling up the, the production capacity. But essentially it's a demand or supply constraint. And I'm sure on the demand side, the the cost is, is a big component of it. You know, we talked about, you know, companies passing down that cost and subsidizing, but is there also some automation or technology that, that you're working towards that, that can help bring down that cost of production? Yeah, everything that we do on site is geared towards bringing down the cost of production. I think for us right now, and this is probably the case with like a lot of startups in the position that we're at, is like demand's a lot higher than we can supply for. And so we're just trying to keep up 
with demand, even if we're operating at a little bit of a loss currently, like getting the product out there, improving market demand and proving that it's deployable and scalable is almost a lot more important than like the unit economics at this point in time. I think there's a lot that can still be done and I'll, to bring down the cost, but unfortunately, a lot of that's like time based. Like you can only do so many iterations within a certain time period. So it's kind of like big improvements over time, and the curve's a lot more linear than exponential in terms of yeah reducing the cost of production. So that's always an ongoing phenomenon. But then all the commercialization stuff on top of it is a lot more important when you're a VC funded startup because you're always hoping to prove out kind of like the next commercial success and viability of the product. Yeah, it's the, um, the beauty and the challenge of, of real-world solutions, right? The iteration cycle depends on, and especially when you have biological processes, this is not software where you can just, you know, run again every other day the solution and, and see uh, some daily progress on the, the technology. Yeah, it's like a two or three weeks cycle for us. Yeah. Right. How do you see the the space of seaweed production? Because there are several startups operating in, on that space. I'm not familiar if they have different technologies or different approaches, but do you see this as a space that will consolidate eventually with you know a few global leaders? Or is there valid reasons for it to have you know a lot of players that might have different approaches, different geographic footprints? So we're still in the early days of it for sure. But just curious to see uh, if you have a perspective on how this will evolve moving forward. I think because a lot of the emerging startups are venture backed, and so that's the that's the incentive system that it'll probably involve a lot of consolidation within the industry to arrive at a few clear players. It's an agricultural play, right? And historically, under free markets, that's what happens. Hopefully, there will still be a lot of innovators. In the space, I think that because we already started on this trajectory and because there's not a lot of examples for tech development that are non kind of like highly competitive, it's a little bit too late to like form a seaweed co-op. That would be great. But I don't think anyone thought that through completely before like charging at, at the solution. And yeah, the amount of capital needed to do a lot of this research kind of lends itself to being a, a VC-backed yeah, yeah. startup. I think that's a, a really big issue across industries, but I don't think that's anything that one of us can solve currently. Hmm. I think there's a clear parallel to the vertical farming I'm thinking about where there's a lot of vertical farming startups and dozens of vertical farming startups, and quite a few of them didn't make it through, which is a normal journey entrepreneurship, but there are still a few leaders on vertical farming that you know have raised hundreds of millions now because they have they have a viable um, and large scale business. What is the vision for for Simbros over the coming years? So there is this production facility to scale up, but can you share a bit? You mentioned a million cows earlier. The, the vision for Simbroso. Yeah, I think from the beginning we really prided ourselves on being an innovative company, so continuing to conduct R and D. And then as the company has scaled as well and we've grown the team, I realized how important it is to set company values and practices in alignment with my personal values and practices. I think that's made us a really competitive company to work for. 
we receive, yeah, a lot of folks from industry comparables that kind of like heard about our company culture. So I think being an, an equitable, transparent workplace that prioritizes people has also been a big part of our mission lately. And I think it yields returns in terms of talent, which is the most important thing to getting to scale. So doubling down on that and not ignoring it from the beginning is important because it's tough to come back once you've taken people for granted too many times. And then I think, I guess back to like your previous question, because we've developed a lot of technology around the seed stock, I think we'd really like to see other farmers using our seed. So trying not to scale everything ourselves, but working with different manufacturers, either that already grow seaweed or people that are interested in growing seaweed and just selling seed stock to them and kind of helping them navigate the grow out and then uh, purchasing that back and selling it into markets is is definitely something that I think would be more collaborative and equitable and help everyone scale more quickly. So that's kind of one of my targets for this year. We're already working with one contract manufacturer in Hawaii to do that. And I have a couple other projects in the pipeline to continue on that route. Super interesting. Would there be also a model similar again to, to vertical farming where not only you provide the seeds, but also maybe part of tech stack that Symbrosia has to, you know, so that you're not owning the assets, you're not doing the operation yourselves, but you're providing the the expertise that you've developed. Yeah. Because when you think about it, like the toughest part to scaling a new operation is the facilities and finding the people, right? If you already have the technology, that's kind of the easy part. So if you can overcome some of those barriers by finding mutually beneficial relationships with growers, then it's it has been a win-win in many cases for the the seaweed farmers that we're working with. That make a lot of sense and, and enable you to scale to, you know, also countries that you wouldn't necessarily go to right away, for instance. I, I don't know, I'm just thinking of South Africa or other countries where this product might make sense, but, you know, it's probably not something you were looking to right away to, to have operations in, in South Africa or other countries. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Super interesting. Just a few more questions before we conclude. If you could do it again, um, you know, that journey from Yale, the, the different iterations on the, the prototype and the scale up of the production now, what would you do differently in that journey? Uh, that's a long list, but... <laughs> maybe maybe the top one. <laughs> I think I would ask for more capital early on. I would hire folks that were a really good fit for the positions and not just necessarily folks that wanted to come work on the project. I think, yeah, doing like legitimate interviews, like not, I feel like when you're starting out, you feel like you're just kind of an unimportant project and people wouldn't want to work with or for you because you're not stable. But I think having that expertise and that really could drive the success of the company a lot more quickly in the earlier years than having to like learn everything yourself. I think I would have spent more time ironing out a business model that was more inclusive and equitable across the industries. I think it's tough to re-communicate that once you've already received investment, like with the folks that have kind of bought into to one model. So I think that's really important, like starting out, especially if there's things within your company that like personally just like to be a certain way. Once you have more board advisory, everything has to formally go through a board and and there's more pushback on kind of those personal decisions. So I think that's one thing to do really early on in the company. You just mentioned that the first one that came to mind was 
raising more money. And it's interesting because often you hear the the opposite of like take more time to raise funding. Is it because this is such a capital intensive industry and, and more money would have enabled you to go faster or maybe build bigger the first facilities? I think as a first time female founder, I probably didn't value myself or the company as much as I should have. Not that like we got an assistant, like not that I feel regret about the situations, but like when I look at male colleagues in similar industries, white male colleagues, they just know how to kind of advocate for their worth. I mean, it's statistically backed up, right? The women get a fraction of like one or 2% of VC funding and oftentimes get less funding for the same technologies or solutions. So I think knowing that in hindsight and being a little bit more bullish on the value of what we're going to build. Yeah, I think. But you don't know that until you don't know that until you're already really deep into it. So yeah. So even though even though it's only an idea, you you need to understand the value of your team, yourself and, and what you're building. And and I think it's yeah, it's definitely harder than early stage rather than, you know, now that there's a team, there's more uh, more traction, more things that are already proven. Is there a useful resource that you'd recommend us to, you know, read, watch, or, or anything on seaweed or on uh, livestock production to, to go a bit deeper on these topics? There's one book. It's called Concentration and Power in the Food System, and it's really about how markets and players have aggregated and marginalized farmers in a commercial setting for profit and kind of like the day-to-day woes and the system that a lot of our food producers are stuck in. I think that's a really enlightening book for anyone who hasn't spent a lot of time in agricultural markets or on farms just to kind of like better empathize with the people who produce our food and what's expected of them. Okay, I'll add the book name in the in the show notes and we'll definitely read that. Alexia, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking together. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but it's it's been an inspiration to see also, you know, what you've done in in five years from from that research paper to you know almost uh, one million cow uh, size production facility. There's obviously a lot to be done to scale up the use of seaweed across the world, but it's it's so fantastic to see that there are already results. There are already farms using this, and now it's really just about scaling up that production and bringing down the the cost curve. So thank you so much for sharing that journey with us and your knowledge of uh, what's a pretty fascinating uh, industry. Thank you for your time and for taking on the responsibility of digging into this. With all the founders, I think it's important to get more in the nitty gritty. Congratulations, you finished this episode. Thank you so much for listening until the end. And if you liked it, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. This is really helpful to be more visible in the rankings and to be able to keep inviting the best of climate tech entrepreneurs in this show. Thank you so much, and I'll catch you on our next episode very soon.